What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices, Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM, the Pacifica Network, and online at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, today, my guest is Gogo Ekaya Esima. Uh, Gogo Ekaya is a traditional healer, a teacher, and a psychiatric survivor. She's a shaman in the Sangoma tradition of South Africa with a private practice based in Southern California. So welcome to Madness Radio, Gogo Ekaya Esima. Thank you. It's such a blessing to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great to meet you through the Crazy Wise film that we're both uh, a part of, and we were recently in the Crazy Wise uh, town hall, and people can check out uh, Crazy Wise on the internet. And um, the topic is, I think, of great interest to listeners, the uh, idea that what gets called a psychiatric crisis or a mental illness might actually be the signs of initiation into being a shaman or a traditional healer, having some kind of positive role to play as a healer and teacher in the community. So I'm really interested to have you on the show. And I, sh- I should also mention that Madness Radio is now a affiliate radio show of Mad in America Radio. So um, thanks to Mad in America for uh, sponsoring us and for inviting us to become an affiliate. And if people want more information about other Mad in America radio programs, just go to the madinamerica.com website. So maybe we should just get started. Tell us how you got involved in all this. How did you first start having mental health problems? And then how did that evolve into your discovery of your calling and your vocation as a healer? Sure. I um, suffered from depression for um, most of my life um, through childhood on through adulthood. And a lot of that was suppressed um, in my family. And, um, so it really wasn't addressed. And then about when I was in my, uh, early thirties, I, um, started to see things that other people didn't see and have some auditory interruptions as well. Um, and at that time I felt like my whole world was crashing in front of me. So I, attempted suicide several times. And um, the last time that that happened, I really, I woke up in the hospital room and realized that I was still alive. And from that point on, I decided to uh, start looking for my purpose in life because apparently uh, someone, something, some energy wanted me to remain here. So when you say depression, you suffered with this um, your whole life. What kind of depression was it, or how did it sort of affect you? Yeah, um, depression affected me. I, I mean, I think they diagnosed me with um, a major depressive disorder. You know, it affected me in the way where I was in and out of work a lot. Like, there's some points of uh, in my life where I couldn't wake up and, and actually get up to go to work. Um, so it was hard for me to keep employment. I lost uh, contact with my children, which further uh, deepened my depression. Um, I'm the mother of three boys, and so being far, far away from them and um, feeling hopeless a lot um, really left me kind of in the trenches. And then dealing with some, uh, not dealing with some 
trauma that I experienced through my childhood, through sexual abuse and that sort of thing, really was just pressing down on me um, as I became older. And um, yeah, I just had to do something about it. And this was something that was connected with your own trauma experiences, your own abuse experiences that weren't dealt with. Yeah, they weren't dealt with. I mean, I, I believe my family did as, you know, my mom did as much as she could at the time with her experience. But after, after um, you know, she did what she could, everything was swept under the rug. Um, like I was just supposed to forget about everything and move on with my life. And the abuser was still in my life. Um still able to see me. So it was just really strange. Um, and I didn't know who to trust in life and, and was, uh, you know, even had symptoms or uh, issues of paranoia where I would get around people or, and have really intense social anxiety as well. Um, and feel like that I couldn't trust anyone around me. So your abuser was still in your life. So this was an ongoing threat really, that you were experiencing. So the depression, it sounds like, was really related to this situation of, of violence and kind of powerlessness of being not being able to really get safety in your life, yeah, something like that? Yeah, definitely not to get, uh, not feeling safe and not being able to vocalize my truth. I think that was a big part of, like, um, my experiences is not having the ability to communicate in the way that was healing for myself. So you weren't able to challenge or confront this abuser or speak what your truth right, was? Right, not until way later. And was was this because this was a family dynamic or was it a social, cultural issue? What was going on that you weren't supported and validated? Well, I I think, um, you know, there were a lot of issues, you know, it, was, it happened when I was a lot younger as a child. And uh, it was my father. So my father was actually um, put away for a few months. And then um, he, he was in he was in jail. Yeah, it was he was institutionalized in some way, shape or form. It was a little less than jail. But they when he came back after a couple of months, he asked my mother if they could if he could speak to me. And my mother said, OK, you're you know, and and she opened up that door for him to come back into my life. And then she eventually married him um, some years later. So that was. That was a, a part of my distress that I carried and the burden that I carried throughout my life. And how old was this when he came back into your life? Um, I would say about seven years old. Wow. So that, that creates a very confusing and complicated family reality for someone so young to really understand what's going on and how to feel safe. And so then you, you carry this kind of depression that wasn't dealt with, and it sounds like it really came to a culmination with really extreme states. You said you started to see things and have experiences that other people weren't having. What what were those about? What, what, and what is it that kind of brought you to that point? Was it more stress or something was pressurizing you? Or what is it that drove the depression to take it to another level like that? Yeah, I think that the depression just got really, really bad. And um, my father had passed about four years prior to this experience. And um, and I lived in a, a, I was actually in another abusive relationship with, um, with a partner and I could not leave my apartment. I lived in a one room apartment and I couldn't leave. I couldn't step out the, the outside of the house because I was so paranoid. And as I sat in that room for a period of months, 
I started to, like, my world started to open up. I started to see people who weren't alive, including my father, and I started to um, self-harm. And was the abusive relationship that you got into, do you think that that was related to the fact that you had been abused by your, your father? Yeah, I definitely think that was a trigger because it was, it was, um, more, it was more of a controlling abuse and also um, abuse in the way of uh, like sexually forcing um, himself as well. So all of that brought back all of this stuff from my childhood and then the fact that I couldn't keep work and then the fact that I couldn't be with my children and all these things pressing down on me at the same time really um, began to open up uh, this wounding in a way that wasn't beneficial because the, the, the voices that I started to hear um, and the visions that I saw were definitely negative. They weren't um, anything of light or positivity. And, uh, you know, I would hear uh, voices that would tell me to cut myself or that I needed to die and all of those things. So you're starting to have these very scary negative experiences and at the same time, you describe it as an opening. So was it somehow an opening to an other realm, a spiritual realm? Because I think that you have a f- framing of this that maybe is different than a lot of the trauma therapies would say, oh, these are symptoms of flashbacks and trauma. But you're sort of taking it a little bit differently, that, that it's negative, but at the same time, it's also kind of an opening to other realms of reality. Is that is that right? Yes, it definitely was an opening. Now that I look back on it in retrospect, at the time I didn't quite understand, but it was definitely an opening of of these gifts that I had to see into other worlds. But at the time, it definitely uh, felt very opposite than a gift. It was torture, and so you know, and I I know that a lot of people have experiences where their their energy is very heightened, and um, they have experiences of feeling that we're all connected and that we're all one and all of these things. And I think um, that is part of the, the light. And then um, my experience was more a part of seeing, seeing the darkness. So we're going to come back to this because um, in working with a lot of people who have what are called spiritual emergence or shamanic initiation or spiritual opening processes, this is really such the central issue. How do you sort out the negative and the positive? How do you sort out the trauma from the gift? So we're going to come back to this because this is a really key, really key piece of the whole question that we're exploring. And I also think it's really interesting and significant about what you say that you weren't in a kind of like a manic, so-called expanded state where things were positive and excited and inspiring. You're in kind of this dark, paranoid place you're really sort of disconnecting into these very negative energies and some of the literature around spiritual emergence some of the um, approaches that have come from Stan and Christina Groff for example would kind of say well you know these are these are the really psychotic people these are the ones who are having these paranoid negative experiences they're not really having spiritual emergence but actually you you were and you were able to navigate that and so I think this is a very interesting question how you took this negative seeming energy and then transformed it into the gift. So we're going to get into that. So tell us about, it sounds like the breaking point was really the suicide attempts. You reached a point where these visions and these voices and this paranoia really drove you 
to attempt suicide and then you wake up in the hospital and you're alive? And was that the turning point that you started to take charge of things and start to really move in a direction to kind of find out what you needed for yourself? Yes, that was absolutely the turning point. And um, while I was unconscious for that time for a couple of days, I really think... Can I ask you, what what was it that you... Did you take pills or what was it that was the suicide attempt? Yeah, I took a, I took a bottle of my... Um, one of my antipsychotics. It's heartbreaking. I hear this so much that people are... They go home from the hospital or they get their prescription and then they've got the means right there that's been given to them by the mental health system for attempting suicide. And so you took a, a lethal dose, but you woke up. Why is it that did you just get lucky or did someone find you or what is it that happened that you were able to uh, survive that? Yeah, I, I was, um, I passed out outside. Um, and so there were, there was somebody that was able to, to find me and, and take me in. Do you think there was a part of you that wanted to live that maybe you were in so much pain that, you know, some part of you wanted to die, but there was still at least a little part of you that wanted to survive. And so you ended up being outside or something kind of was taking care of you. A part of you was taking care of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there was a, a part of me, there was something that wanted to live, but so much of my experiences, I, I was just I felt like that I, it was too much to handle to be in this world. Was there was there a, a point at which it got too much? Do you remember that point that was kind of okay? This is it. I can't. I can't go anymore. I have to try and end my life. Yeah. Right. I I think right before that, um, like I was in, I was hospitalized for um, a couple months, and then I was released into a homeless shelter. Um, got homeless shelter and started to experience these things again. And I called the nurse actually, that was helping me in the um, psychiatric ward. And she said, you know, just come back because I was, the the situation was really hostile and I'd never been in a homeless shelter uh, like that. And it was, you know, in, in New York City and I felt really unsafe and I started to feel paranoid and all those things again. And she told me to come back. But the, when I went back, the, um, the admitting psychiatrist, uh, didn't believe me, like didn't believe my experiences. And he pretty much told me that he didn't believe me and just and told me to leave. He told you he didn't believe that you were suffering so much and that you were in such an extreme place. Right. And he told me to leave. Wow. What a, that feels like a real betrayal. That would be really upsetting for anybody, I think. Yeah. And then, so I walked out and I was on my way home and I decided that I was going to you know, take the bottle of pills at that time. So the the kind of the mistreatment was sort of the trigger, the way in which you got this mixed message. One professional says, come in, and the other one says, no, 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 I don't believe you that you're really suffering. We're not going to actually help you. That must have felt like a real betrayal. Yeah, and I was I was just so um, over the in and out all the time and, and, and not feeling like things were working. I know also that a lot of traditions talk about death being a teacher because you really confronted your own death in a sense you were right there at the uh, edge of the abyss do you think that was part of the the turning point was having that encounter with death yes I, I know that was the turning point and you know in um, shamanism we call it the dark night of the soul you know really experiencing being able to experience our darkness and get to a point, a very, very low point so that we can emerge out and become something new. How did you 
then get interested in traditional South African shamanism? Okay. So during that time, I had trained in pranayama, which is, you know, a, a form of yogic meditation. And I kept searching, you know, I would leave work and come home and search for research for hours about shamanism and healing and traditional ways of healing. And I was listening to a woman's blog talk radio show who was a, a traditional healer, a Sangoma. And um, she was so overjoyed on those those uh, radio shows. And I thought, wow, she's too happy. I could never like talk to her. <laughs> but um, eventually I decided I was going to reach out to her and I got a, what we call an ancestral divination. And it, it's a form of, it's actually a form of diagnostic, diagnosing um, a person's spiritual self. Now this was a the Sangoma. This was a South African healer that you. Yeah. Sangomas are um, South African traditional healers. And um, we use um, a form of ancient oracle or um, divination tools to communicate with our ancestral guardians um, to see what's happening with the person sitting in front of us. And so I was able to um, get a divination from her. That's so great to hear that it was a a podcast that was the turning point that connected you with yeah. shamanism. <laughs> podcast changed life. Okay, yes. so this is so this is very this is very far out from the perspective of psychiatry and uh, the DSM. And tell us what you mean by ancestral divination. Is it a kind of an understanding of how relationship with you know our family history relates to the suffering that we have today or how does that work and you say it's an oracle so how what exactly went into that reading and how do you do them now that you've learned to do these okay so the ancestral reading it is a tool that looks at the person's spiritual self and how their ancestors are doing in the spiritual realm and their guardians are doing in the spiritual realm and as we like to say, as above, so below. So what is affecting us in the spirit form or in the spirit world will also trickle down in this physical form. And so we believe as Sangomas that a lot of our um, imbalances or what people call um, you know, mental illness, things like that, or psychosis may come from something that's happening in the spiritual realm and I like to make this analogy, like when people go to the doctor and they sit in front of the, the doctor, they say, the doctor asks them a list of questions like, what's your father's history and what's your mother's history? And do you have cancer on this side or do you have this on that side? And it's the same thing in, uh, with the ancestral divination, but the, the person sitting in front of us getting the consultation, they don't say anything about themselves. So we actually just get their their name and their father's last name and their mother's um last name, and then we go into a uh, trance state to pull information from the spiritual realm and talk to the people about their ancestors. In African traditions, we believe that our ancestors are a central part of how we work in this lifetime because we share their blood. So no difference from going to the doctor and saying, likely that I could get cancer because everybody on my mother's side had it, you know, and so we're looking at at what your ancestors carried in their lifetimes and what needs to be cleansed in order for you to actually release those things ancestrally in your lineages um, so that you can have a more balanced life. 
I think that there's a kind of a modern form of it in family therapy and things like open dialogue where basically we're just kind of recapitulating in a psychological language of modern Western science. We're sort of rehashing what has been known from indigenous perspectives traditionally throughout human history as a core to how you heal by understanding the relationships that you have and then taking them all the way back. And what you're saying is that you go a step further, that you communicate with the spirits of the of the dead ancestors. And it sounds like when you were having those struggles, when you were in the abusive relationship, when you're alone and isolated in your apartment and couldn't leave and you had these openings, was that the same kind of skill that you're able to go into those other realms and communicate with those ancestors, but in that situation, it was negative and traumatic and terrifying and overwhelming, but now the same opening becomes a skill in this divination tool that you use. Yes, and and through initiation, we learn how to manage that and uh, how to navigate into those spiritual forms so that we can be safe and that we can help people out of their own darkness. And which I think is a huge question for a lot of the people listening is that how do you do that? How do you exactly <laughs> navigate and learn how to pull it apart and make it so that it's not overwhelming and to not just see it as a negative thing? I have to shut it down, but keep the opening, but somehow work with it. And tell us about that that first divination that you got, because here you are, you've struggled with this incredible abuse history and this depression and then the paranoia and the suicide attempts you're been diagnosed as a mental patient you're seen as a as a disorder and then this very different perspective comes in that says look this is about your ancestral struggles and about the the spirits of people who passed and you were given a divination give us an example like what was it that you were told and then how did it make sense in terms of your own struggles and and how was it useful to you, and what what did actually the divination say? So I got the divination, and um, and by Yeye Gogonana, uh, who was my teacher, and I, I had written down a list of questions of everything that I wanted to ask her, and before I even answered or asked, got to ask any questions, she actually answered all of my questions. So she has these psychic or paranormal or spiritual. Ability. She's a seer or a medium or a visionary. And what were some of the questions that you got answered? Well, one of the questions is that I, I had written down is I felt I knew that there was uh, like an ancestor in my home, a spirit in my home that I was seeing. And I just wanted her to acknowledge or confirm or if she knew anything about it. And um, I had that question written down and she, uh, without hesitation, said, you know, you have an energy in your home and it's your father and he did this to you. And and she didn't know me from anyone else, you know, and she only asked me my name. So read my life from childhood to that present moment and was very detail oriented in everything that, that she uh, described. And one of my last questions that I had written down is, is was I supposed to have some sort of shamanic training or initiation. And uh, she, at the end, she said, you know, you're supposed to be doing what I'm doing. You're, you have a calling, um, a spiritual calling to become a priestess or a shaman or a healer. And um, I know from that point, I was just in tears because it so resonated with my spirit and 
and she was on point about everything that I experienced. And she, you know, when I first met her, she told me that I wasn't crazy, <laughs> which was amazing because, uh, you know, from everybody else, you know, it looked like, or, you know, family and friends and, and, and being in the, in, in uh, the hospital, everybody was telling me that I was. And so she was the first person outside of the peer world um, that told me that I was. That goes a long way for building trust, telling a person that you're not crazy, just for everybody out there listening. That's one of the, one of the key things that you need to be doing if you want to actually connect and relate to people. And um, it sounds like one of the key things was how it resonated with you. But I also know that there are situations where someone goes to a psychic uh, or they go to a healer or they go to a shaman and then the person really isn't honest or the person is unscrupulous. There are those shamans, healers out there. So what do you think was the difference? How is it that you were able to find and connect and feel good about someone and have a good experience? And what kind of advice or guidance would you give people to finding someone that they really have a good connection with? Because people are often very vulnerable. They can be really taken advantage of and really exploited. So why do you think it worked for you when it might not work for someone else? And what would you give as advice for someone who does want to start exploring this this world? Yeah, for me, I felt like I was definitely guided intuitively and by my ancestral guardians to get to her. But there was also a deep connection. It took me a while to actually go to her, but I listened to her blog talk radio and I knew that she had a story just like mine. She is also a peer herself. Um, she had experienced abuse in her life. And so we had stories that were relatable. And um, I think that was the biggest connection that, you know, I could see myself in her. Were you sort of checking her out when she would tell her personal stories? Was that allowed you to sort of see whether you could trust her or not? Because I think that's a big part of what we teach in the peer movement is that disclosure and being open about who we are is what allows us to get a sense of somebody and start to trust them rather than having this kind of wall up that the person is hiding behind as a professional. And then you have no idea whether to trust them or not. So you just sort of say, well, I guess I better trust you because you have the authority and you have the position and you have the institutional role. But all of your intuitive kind of ability to check somebody out and trust them isn't really operating because they're not disclosing who they are. So was that a key part of why you connected and resonated, do you think? Yeah, that was definitely a key part of how and why I connected with her. And I feel like um, it's important if, if someone is going to look for a traditional healer, look at their background, look at their testimonies. Each person should be able to, to talk to you, you know, on the phone um, before you actually spend any money. You make sure that it feels right to you and relatable to you in a way that um, is clear. So for me, her story definitely resonated with my story and I felt comfortable enough to say yes. And I had, I mean, I was a non-believer in the sense of spending money on a reading. Like I would never do that. I, I just, it wasn't in my, my processing or thinking, but um, something was really, uh, my divine spirits were really guiding me um, to get there and get the information. So you got this divination, which just really clicks and feels really right on, and she's giving you information that there's no other way she could have gotten because she didn't, you didn't tell her. How did it help you? Well, after the the call, I felt completely liberated. I felt free and confirmed. 
you know, from everything that I was experiencing. So after a uh, ancestral reading, there is a, that's the diagnostic tool that we use, but then there is a sort of prescription. So I had a prescription that I had to follow for 21 days and also to follow up with her for a healing session. And after the 21 days, I went to where she was uh, for my first healing session. I'm curious, what was the prescription that she gave you? You know, I can't go into complete detail with all of it, but it's definitely some cleansing ritual and just things to follow uh, each each day for 21 days. And um, one of them was no sugar, which I was I'm very big on. So she's giving you a spiritual diagnosis, but then the treatment is a comprehensive, holistic approach that addresses your your body and addresses the food that you eat as well as the spiritual dimension. Yes, because it's all very connected. There's no separation. And so, um, yeah, I, I was on it for those 21 days. And, and then I went to go see her for my healing session and had a profound experience there. What was the healing session? Um, the healing session was uh, very shamanic in the way of drumming and calling on the ancestral spirits. And because I had a calling, she did a spiritual cleansing for me and a certain ritual um, through drumming and sound to help bring up my guardian spirits. And um, once she started doing that, I didn't know what she was doing at the time, but once she started doing that, I felt a shift within my body and I started to go into a trance state. And it was a, a really powerful experience because I felt like I was free to let go, you know, of some of the things that happened to me behind closed doors, you know, when I'm by myself, um, that someone was actually holding space for that time for me to explore. So I went into that, that trance space and, um, found the connection with my guardian spirits. And from that time on, I knew that um, I needed to go into initiation. And I knew that it was going to be um, my saving grace because it was a really, really powerful experience. Now, you say she was herself a, a survivor. Did she identify these so-called psychotic experiences that you were having that would have been seen as symptoms? Did she recognize that, okay, the paranoia and the the opening and the voices that you had, did she see those as part of your gifts in terms of becoming a healer and a shaman yourself? Yeah, she absolutely saw those as um, my gifts. And and um, she had expressed her experiences with depression and trauma and all those things, but definitely saw that my experiences were not just mental illness, that there was something happening that she could see in the spiritual realm for me that was different. And um, I must say that everybody that has these experiences do not actually have a calling to initiate into shamanism, uh, shamanic practice. There can be many different reasons um, for someone to experience these things. Um, it could just be that there are ancestral spirits that need cleansing and help. It could be uh, what we call negative spirit attachment. It could be a whole slew of things. And so that's why we're going into a trance mode, into that divinatory mode to see exactly what's happening with the person. Can you tell us a little bit about that tradition? You say South Africa and what, what is it from and how does it connect to indigenous cultures there? Absolutely. So the Nguni people um, of South Africa um, are and there's Kosa people, Zulu, um, their whole tribe of people that are medicine people. 
um, there. And even today, over 70% of the population go to see traditional healers for their, their physical, emotional, um, psychological, and spiritual work. Traditional healers, uh, Sangomas, we use a form of trance dance, of drumming, of ceremonial and ritual work to help release, um, to help heal people um, from all kinds of elements. Tell us about your training. What is it that you needed to do to learn to be a shaman and how long did it take and were there times when you felt like you couldn't do it or it was too hard or too challenging or what was it that the training involved? So the training involved a lot of things and I went in very high energy because I felt like that this was going to be, it was a life or death matter for me. Um, And so, you know, looking back at it, I felt like I had a certain amount of resilience that, um, you know, maybe somebody with those, not those kinds of experience wouldn't have had. There, It's a very difficult, a very difficult, physically challenging and um, challenging on all levels uh, training. We are to humble ourselves to the earth. So we're always very close to the earth. And initiates go through a certain amount of rituals every day that they must do. There's lots of internal medicine that's taken. There's uh, cleansing all of the time. And your dreams are what really gets you through to the next level. So you have certain dreams and then your teacher knows that you're ready to go on to the next thing. So in my training, I was able to go into those those trance states and learn how to navigate the spiritual world. And through that process, we had challenges where we had to find hidden objects, like someone visiting our house or the house um, where we were training at, or our teacher would have any object that she wanted, natural or man-made and hide it somewhere outside or inside the house. And um, part of our training was to build our intuition and, and tell her exactly what the item was and where it was located. And then we'd had to run and go get it uh, without hesitation and bring it back. And so we, you learn the, the aspect of finding missing items. You learn the sacred dances that help you heal and also help others heal. We initiate to certain nature spirits as well. Um, so there's, it's a long and arduous process um, for some people, but it really depends on your dedication to the process and what your, um, how your dreams are happening. So someone could go in and finish in six months as opposed to someone going in and taking six years. There's no cut and dry, you sit in the classroom and this is how long it's going to take. It really depends on you and your spirits for carrying you through. Now, I know that there's a lot of things that that it wouldn't be appropriate to talk about, about the training and the tradition and everything, but can you give us an example or a sense of one of these dreams that gave you some guidance and how you interpreted that or how your um, teacher helped you interpret that? Yeah, um, I had to report my dreams every every morning uh, once I woke up and journal them and then report them. So I, I really, I would go into um, more of dreams that helped were healing dreams for me. Like um, there was an experience that happened um, when I was a child where my mother and father, uh, my mother would tell me this story that they had a big argument and 
my mother had me down on the sofa and she went into the kitchen, you know, to leave the argument. And my father was there. And, you know, all of a sudden she hear me screaming from the top of my lungs. I was like three months old and came into the room and found me on the floor. And she said, uh, my father told her that I had fallen off the couch, um, but my arm was broken. But in the dream, I went back and I was able to see uh, that my father yanked me in a way like he was upset and he, you know, yanked me and actually broke my arm. Um, and so that trauma, like I didn't actually remember that trauma, but it was able to come back up in the dream so that I could see it and heal from it. So there's things that come up. Um, in the dream world that are revealed so that we can actually, it can come to the surface and that we can heal. So I had many dreams, um, different dreams like that. And um, I really can't share the ones that were um, about the progression of the process, but definitely some powerful, powerful dreams. So a traumatic memory that was lost to you comes back through the dream, then you report it to your teacher, and then you said you healed from it. Was it because you felt the feelings or you had a new understanding? What was the healing? I had a, definitely, I had a new understanding, but then I was able to go to my teacher and we we're able to process that together. And, and, and through that process, I'm learning dream interpretation. So, um, like process it in terms of go through the emotions and talk about your feelings and thoughts about like a counseling session. Yeah, almost. Yeah, pretty much. But, and the counseling session includes you know, all the tools that we use as well. So um, the next time I would visit her house, she would talk about the dream. And then, you know, we do singing and drumming, you know, tonal and, um, and the drum, you know, Sangoma means people of the drum. So through that drumming and through that work, I was able to heal and release um, things that came up on a regular basis. I would visit her every week. This is something that I've seen so much in the people that I work with as well as in myself. I mean, I, especially if someone seems stuck or they seem like there's not like what's going on here, there's not asking them about a dream and wow, you just get this huge roadmap. And again, in terms of shamanism in general, dreams are so central to shamanic traditions all over the world. There was something that you mentioned, um, you know, earlier about navigating. It, tell, tell us what that means. You say you you go into trance, you learn to navigate these spirit realms. These Are you using breath? Are you using visualization? Are you using beliefs and practices and the drums? Or how does the navigation work? Because I think this is a lot of where people are interested in shamanism, to be able to protect themselves, to ground themselves, to feel calm and safe and not get overwhelmed and still be able to explore. And that, I think, is the navigation that's missing when someone is overwhelmed by traumatic experiences and they have all these negative visions and voices. And so how does the navigation actually work? What are the skills there? There, there are definitely specific skills, but I think what is, is the most helpful part of that is that the, the constant cleansing of my internal body and my spiritual body so that I could be stronger when I went to those places because I was going to those places without being under initiation. So under initiation, you have this guardian, which is your teacher um, to help you through. And so really going in and being able to connect with your divine spirits as your anchor, as your protection and the medicine that is behind you was important. I'm unable to share exactly all the tools like in, in the forms of navigating the trans experience because that is part of initiation. But, you know, the essential part of this was having 
someone to teach me how to do that, you know, um, someone to say, okay, this is what you, uh, when you went, let's talk about what happened, who, what did you see, who did you see, you know, how to identify these spirits, um, whether it was a nature spirit, or whether it was an uh, ancestral guardian, or, you know, what was happening, and um, one of the practices of what we do is called sniff sniffing out spirits. And um, it's a ritual that allows us to, um, if, a, if a patient comes or a person comes to us, we will go into a trance state and are able to point out blockages in their auric body and in their spiritual body and remove illness and sicknesses. So in that, that spiritual realm, I was able to meet my guardians, connect with them, and to have them be a force so that when I can come back into this physical form, I'd be able to hold their energy and the power. And when I first started to do this initiation, I would um, literally pass out on the floor. Like it was so much energy to just stand up and hold myself up. So a big part of my training was um, becoming physically uh, equipped to be able to hold all the energy um, that uh, the guardian spirits carry. Did your body get physically stronger? Do you feel like you got healthier and more athletically fit and stronger as part of this whole process? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely through the dancing. And, you know, like I said, at first I would pass out. And then, you know, by the um, end of my training, I was able to dance the spirits and to hold my body up better and definitely became physically stronger because there's also certain diet regimens that important. Nutrition is absolutely um, very much important. Do you think that's one of the key things about how to differentiate or how to work with those negative energies is connecting with with your body? Because you, you mentioned before that sometimes people have these spiritual openings that get called mania and they're a spiritual emergence process, but it's very positive and light and lifted and inspiring and enthusiastic and the person has a positive message that they're giving to the world but that wasn't what you went through and what you went through was more negative paranoia frightening self-harm suicidal feelings and what we often are hearing in the spiritual emergence kind of literature is that well those people aren't really the ones that are equipped those negative experiences aren't really part of spiritual emergence and spiritual awakening that's really psychosis, but that's what you went through. So what was it that do you think um, makes the difference in terms of helping people with these negative experiences? Yeah, you know, in in shamanism, you have to go into the dark places in order to help to find your light and to help people to find their own light, you know. And that's all about, you know, we you hear about the wounded healer's journey. And to answer your question, yes, being grounded in a way and having myself come back into my body. So I talked a lot about trance, but there was definitely a lot of work about around grounding and feeling what was happening inside my body. But when I did get get back into my body, my body would shake, you know, or my head would turn different ways. And, you know, some people talk about the kundalini energy and how, you know, it can make an arm flail or move, you know, involuntary movements were happening during my, my Twaza process because I was just now getting back into my body and feeling it uh, for the first time in a very long time. And so in my perspective, what was happening was that there were other energies 
that were um, attached in taking kind of um, using my body in the form of self-harm and, and that sort of thing. So I had to reconnect to my body absolutely in order to connect to my divine self and my divine spirit. That's another way that it connects up with somatic approaches to trauma healing in Western psychology. I'm thinking of somatic experiencing Peter Levine's work or sensory motor psychotherapy, um, that these involuntary movements like shaking, it's a release of traumatic energy. It's a part of an unwinding of a, of a discharge of this traumatic energy. And it's a sign that the trauma is actually resolving itself rather than being caught and trapped in the body and then showing up as these, as these symptoms. Absolutely. Yes. And so a lot of that, that energy releasing was happening in order for my guardian spirits to actually merge with me. And, you know, we talk about the yin and yang, the dark and the light. And you have to go through the dark night of the soul in order to help people out of their own dark night of the soul. So I had to look within myself and see everything that was there and everything that I, you know, didn't want to face and that I was running away from my whole life and facing it and facing it now with an armor of ancestral spirits behind me and medicine that was with me in order to become a warrior, so to speak. Mm, beautiful. Akaya, one of the things that we hear in shamanic traditions and associated with that kind of worldview is the idea of evil spirits and, you know, entities and, you know, protecting ourselves from evil spirits. And I think this can be kind of scary for a lot of people because, I mean, the idea of good and bad, black and white, that there's absolute evil out there is a pretty overwhelming thought. So help us understand how the shamanic traditions kind of view evil and entities and spirits and that and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, you know, I can speak for Sangoma. We definitely have tools and um, rituals around removing negative entities. And as far as dealing with it on a personal level, you know, there were definitely some very dark things there, like I had mentioned before, but it was about me recognizing what we call, you know, uh, the term used now is the shadow self. I am light and I'm also, I have a shadow, I have darkness and that is all a part of me. And I have love for every part of that, every part of the whole that completes me, you know, and um, out of the darkness becomes uh lots of beauty. You know, you were talking about nature and we, we think of tsunamis and, you know, how the ocean and, you know, the rain, the rain can give us, um, you know, feeding our earth and growing our food and all of those things, but then it can also wipe some things out, you know, and flood. Um, so there are two, there's a dynamic and two sides to everything and being of acceptance of that, you know, um, even to this day, I'm still working on being acceptance of all the shadow parts of me. And the more that I love them, the more that they become um, less relevant in my life. So I'm really all about merging the two and acknowledging the fact that we, yes, we are light workers. We work from light. That's the, the type of work that I do. And I'm also acknowledging that darkness, those dark energies. And yes, they are very present. And it is a force in our, our life. We see it every day. But how do we we merge the two and balance the two so that 
um, what bothers us and hinders us and blocks us becomes less relevant through working on our fears, you know, because our fears can create so much more of the heaviness. It's so different than the training that psychiatrists have or doctors have. It's it's a self-awareness. It's a looking inside of ourselves and healing ourselves. And that gives us the capacity to understand and reach out and to heal the other. That understanding our own shadow side, you know, helps us to protect from not just, you know, dumping it on the other or expressing it on the other without awareness and consciousness. And that's something that I think Western doctors and Western medicine doesn't do. There's a, an objective like, oh, you know, it's not a personal thing. The doctor's personal life or their personal experience doesn't come into this. It's just a technology that they're using. And I think that's very dangerous in the realm of human relationships. I wanted to also ask you about the role of plant spirits. Uh, plants are really important in, in shamanism. In a lot of the tr shamanic traditions, they use psychedelic plants, and that's part of, of the trance states that the shamans go into, whether it's ayahuasca or psilocybin mushrooms or um, the different psychoactive plants that people are using. But how is the tradition that you are part of how do you relate to plant spirit medicines? Um, I work with plant medicines on a daily basis and with the people that I work with as well. I don't work with a lot of uh, psychedelics, but there are psychedelics in our, in our tradition. You know, we have a, a very light herb called Impepo. Um, Impepo is something that you, you would use kind of like sage here to clear the area or smudge your space. Um, but we also use it, we inhale it, inhale the smoke to induce um, trance. So there is that component to the impepo. I mean, that's something that I would use on a, a daily basis, and it's very light. Um, but there are over 2,000 medications in South Africa just focused on things um, dealing with the mind and madness. So there are, there are so many earth medicines that are used, whether you're bathing with them, whether you're steaming with them, whether um, you drink them and then purge them, we, we have lots of different purging medicines. So plant medicines are a big, big, big part of my work, and, and I use them personally on a daily basis. Have you found them effective? Do they help you with your own issues of paranoia and depression and these kinds of things you've been struggling with? When I was talking about the bathing, the steaming, and the... Um, the purging, that is something that I did through my entire training, um, my entire initiation. And uh, for the upkeep of my own spirit and my mind, I continue to do those on a regular basis to this day. Akaya, we don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to ask you one uh, question more just about what kind of advice would you give to someone who maybe is a psychiatric survivor who's been through some really difficult experiences that would get called psychosis from a Western psychiatry perspective and is interested in shamanism and is wondering, well, maybe I have a shamanic calling or maybe this is uh, something that speaks to me. What, what advice or guidance would you have for them? You know, um, the advice I would have for them is to um, seek out a mentor or someone who resonates with your being, check up on them, ask questions, again, look at their testimonies um, and and go reach out to somebody. Lots of times we like to get on YouTube and, you know, look at a whole bunch of videos and do things on our own. But the importance of somebody holding space and, um, 
and being able to consult with somebody is uh, so, so important. Um, it, it can be any, any shamanic tradition that, tradition that you're called in, uh, called to. Um, I, I'd say go to that and, and find an elder in that community or someone that um, you feel like you can really trust to consult with and get a reading. You know, for me, I knew that my ancestors, you know, were here, but came from the West African area. I didn't know that even further back in my lineage, there were also South Africans. So um, I also honor those West African spirits that are with me, the definitely the ones that are here, my grand, you know, the grandmothers and grandfathers that I did um, hear of, stories of. Um, but I think it's important to connect back to your own traditions um, whether it be Celtic or Native or African, and sometimes you know I understand, especially in the in Europe in Europe, a lot of those traditions were forgotten, and so you see many uh, Europeans going to Africa to pick up the ways and the rituals so that they can start to remember their their own ancestors as well. So it's it's not really based on color because you know we we have you know shamanism down in South Africa. South America um, that's really big and the natives. So it's just really what calls to your spirit. But I really feel like it's definitely important to uncover some of those truths within your own lineage first. So you would see someone who maybe has European cultural ancestry, if they're called to be part of the South African shamanic tradition, that would be a legitimate thing for them to explore and to, and to go into? That happens a lot you know one of my one of my best friends is a a a a white sangoma and it's it's because uh you know she had a calling to pick up ancestral ways it may have not been you know her european ancestors but through that she was able to connect to them and so you know with some of the lost traditions i think that you know it's it's vital and important for the healing of our world and our in our akaya we are just about out of time in the interview Give us the web address of your website and how people can get in contact with you if they want to find out more about you and your work. Sure. I have a, a practice in here in Southern California, as you spoke of before. Um, and the website is sangomahealing.com. That's S-A-N-G-O-M-A healing.com. And then I also have a Facebook, Sangoma Healing. Gogo Akaya Esima, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you so much, Will. It's very nice, and I appreciate and am humbled um, that you invited me here to speak to your audience. You're doing beautiful work. You've been listening to an interview with Gogo Akaya Esima. Gogo Akaya is a traditional healer, teacher, and psychiatric survivor. She's a shaman in the Sangoma tradition of South Africa, and she has a private practice based in Southern California. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices. Host is Will Hall and producer is Nina Packabush. Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM and the Pacifica Network, and shows are archived online at madnessradio.net. Mm-hmm.